The Cambridge Dictionary defines the verb grace as being in a place and making it look more attractive. Well, that's the thing about parenthood. Sometimes it's the last thing you think when you hear that word. But to us, for something to be beautiful, I mean truly beautiful, it has to be imperfectly perfect. There is no right way to be a parent. There is only doing it to the best of your ability. And that is what we define as growing with grace. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, guys. Welcome back to episode two. It's Kiana and Tyla. We're back with our second episode, Much Awaited. And we're here to talk about some things that are really special to us in a lot of ways. We would like to share a sensitivity disclaimer and let you guys know that we are not professionals. This is something that we are speaking to you from our hearts as parents, as people, as mothers, and as family members. But we would like to let you know that we do have good intentions. However, everything that's discussed in here has come from our own opinions and experiences. Yeah, um, just to add to that, we are going to be talking about our children and um, some diagnoses that they have. And as Kiana said, these opinions are ours alone and we are still learning on how to talk about this to each other and to others. And sometimes finding the right words can be difficult. And we may use a term that may not be the correct term. And we definitely want to encourage you to reach out to us and let us know if, if you think that we've said something that maybe we could phrase a little bit differently. Or if you have feedback on any of the things that we talk about in this episode, please, please reach out to us. And um, we are happy to continue the conversation with you. So let's start with kind of we're alluding to the topic, but why don't you go ahead, Ty, and talk about specifically about what JT's diagnosis is and, and give us a little information on that. Sure. So JT, when he was born, he had really swollen feet. I remember as soon as he was born, my doctor was like, whoa, he's got some puffy feet. I had a bit of a tough labor. So they had thought, well, maybe because it had taken so long his feet might've been tucked up under my ribs. Maybe that caused some swelling. So within a few hours of him being born, um, the head of the NICU came in to the labor and delivery room and had told us that he had some concerns about the swelling and he wanted to run some tests to see, to rule out any serious conditions. So that was definitely tough to come to terms with right as he was born. But after some testing at the hospital, when he was first born, Um, They ruled out anything serious when it comes to chromosome abnormalities. They did a ton of blood work to rule out any heart conditions that sometimes um, can be associated with edema. And then I had been Googling newborn swollen feet and I had come across something called primary lymphedema. And the head of the NICU actually invited a geneticist doctor from UConn Health to come in and visit JT and to examine him. And I had mentioned primary lymphedema to Dr. Tucker, and he had said, yeah, it is a possibility. So we had referrals after we left the hospital to follow up with Dr. Tucker at UConn Health, and as well as the Vascular Anomalies Clinic in uh, Boston at Boston Children's. So long story short, JT was diagnosed with primary lymphedema at about six weeks old. 
Um, and we've done some follow-up testing as well um, around six months to confirm that diagnosis. Um, so Jeffrey has primary lymphedema and we can talk a little bit more about what that means. Yeah, so I guess just to clarify, you got that diagnosis while you were still in the hospital, right? Or you knew something was off while you were still in the hospital. When did you officially get the diagnosis? Yeah, so we could visibly, primary lymphedema is usually something that you can visibly see because it's swelling of um, a particular limb or affected area on your body. Um, we actually didn't get a diagnosis in the hospital. We were discharged after about a little over 24 hours. I think we were in the hospital and he was, all of his vitals were great. He was thriving. We didn't have any issues with feeding. So we were, we were discharged with a happy and healthy baby. I was very concerned about his feet because they were discolored. They were pretty purpley. And like the day after he was born, we had a follow-up with his primary care and she didn't really know much about it. And she just kept trying to assure us that everything was okay, but we didn't actually get a clinical diagnosis until he was about six weeks old. And we went in to see Dr. Tucker and the difference, I guess, between a clinical diagnosis and a visual diagnosis, didn't you say it was like a, vis a visual? Well, yeah. So he, he clinically diagnosed Jeffrey with primary lymphedema without doing any tests. He had said, so there's there's different ways to test for primary lymphedema. You can do genetic testing, which sometimes will reveal a genetic mutation that may have caused the lymphedema. Sometimes you can do genetic testing and it doesn't give you much information. There's also special imaging that you can use to confirm a, a lymphedema diagnosis, which we didn't have performed at six weeks, but we did have performed by Boston Children's um, when he was about six months old, which is a nuclear medicine imaging. So it's similar to like an x-ray or an, an MRI. Like a cat. Yeah. It's like a cat scan highlighter that they put, that they put inside of his body to track the fluid. And they have a special machine that picks up the chemicals that they've inserted into his lymphatic system to watch the drainage. Yeah. You explained that very well. <laughs> yeah. So basically what primary lymphedema is, and you just kind of alluded to it is it's a, it's issue with your lymphatic system. So all of us have our lymphatic system is part of our circulatory system. And there are these teeny tiny vessels that move lymph fluid around your body. And what happens in somebody who has primary lymphedema, basically there's a malformation of their lymphatic system and your, your system's just not working as it's supposed to, to pump the fluid, recycle the fluid essentially throughout your body. So a normal healthy person produces around two liters of lymph fluid a day. And your body is just constantly cycling that and you kind of get rid of it through urine and other things like that. Your kidneys process it. But when there's a hiccup in that system, your body can't move the fluid and it pools in, in, in an area. So Jeffrey is primarily affected in his feet, but there are people who have primary lymphedema and it can affect, it can affect anywhere on your body because your lymphatic system is everywhere. So my next question is now that we kind of know what Jeffrey has roughly, we know, I mean, I'm sure the listeners just coming across this, there's, there's going to be a lot of Google searches just because lymphedema is so rare, right? Yeah. So there's two types of lymphedema, primary lymphedema, which means that you were born with it. And there's also different types of primary lymphedema. Sometimes it manifests at birth, like Jeff, sometimes it manifests around puberty. 
And then it can also manifest when you're in your mid adulthood, sort of like early thirties. So that would be primary where you have some type of either genetic mutation or malformation of your lymphatic system. There's also secondary lymphedema. Oh, and I should note too that primary lymphedema is very rare. Very, very, very rare. Primary lymphedema affects one in a hundred thousand individuals. And then there's also something called secondary lymphedema, which maybe some of the listeners are more familiar with. And that's much more common as it affects one in a thousand Americans. And this is according to NIH.gov, which is a common medical journal online. And secondary lymphedema is caused by trauma. So the most common cause is cancer. So it's, I'm assuming it's damage to the lymph nodes. It's yeah, yeah. So most commonly, it's people who have had breast cancer. As part of the, the breast cancer treatment, they'll remove lymph nodes in the underarm area. And so most oftentimes, secondary lymphedema is found in women who have had breast cancer, and it typically will affect one or two of their arms. Now, my next question to you, um, is it genetic? Is that something that they, they know? Is that something that you know that maybe you've carried or passed on or, or potentially that you could have primary lymphedema in, as you get older or in your late 30s, like you were mentioning? Yeah. So that's, that's a tough thing because we did do genetic testing. And as I was saying before, so genetic mutations can be tough because Jeffrey, uh, one of the most common genetic mutations that is seen with somebody who has lymphedema is a mutation in the FLT4 gene. So we did genetic testing on Jeffrey and it came back that he did have a mutation in his FLT4 gene, but the findings were that it was a variance of uncertain significance. So what does that mean? That basically means that they can't say that that mutation is what's causing his lymphedema and they can't say that it's not. So basically they don't know. They just noticed the abnormality and they noted it. Yeah. And then, so the follow-up thing to do was to test um, me and my husband to see if we had the same mutation or if our FLT4 gene appeared like it would, I guess, in a, in a normal person's genetic makeup of that particular gene. So we tested my gene and it did come back that JT inherited that particular sequence from me. But the funny thing is, is I don't have lymphedema. I guess I could say yet. <laughs> Who knows, right? So what I was saying before with primary lymphedema is that it can manifest at birth, puberty, or possibly in your early 30s. So I'm 26, I'll be 27 next month. And it's definitely a fear of mine that maybe I do have this condition. It's just mild or it hasn't really manifested yet. I don't know. Well, that kind of brings me to the next um, topic of discussion that I'd like to ask you specifically. And being parents of children who are special needs or atypical, it's something that you often look even within yourself and all the factors around you as a caregiver for this little child, little, little being, little person. And you're like, what, is this something that I did to them? Is this something that I could have prevented? Did I cause harm? Did, was it, was I a part of the struggle that they now have to carry on with life. So I guess my official question to you is how did it make you feel when you got the diagnosis? How did you feel before the diagnosis and how did you feel after the diagnosis? And how do you feel now that you've had some time to kind of process it? Yeah. Um, so the first few weeks of his life, the first few days, hours were really hard. I cried a lot. 
thinking about it makes me pretty upset. The feeling of not knowing what it meant was really hard. I didn't know if he was in any pain and I would ask his doctors if he was. And, and I mean, I truthfully don't think they knew either, but they were like, he's eating, he's sleeping. Okay. He's doing all of these normal newborn things. So we think he's okay. And of course they're going to say that to you because as a brand new mom, you have so many hormones flushing through your body that the last thing you need to do is worry about some condition that your child may have. And as long as they're eating and doing their normal things, then hopefully you can kind of not worry about it. But yeah, so those first few weeks, I was really worried sick and I was Googling as much as I could. And of course you're getting input from everybody around you, family members who are telling you, you know, oh, he'll grow out of it. Don't worry about it. He's fine. To other family members who are thinking like, oh my God, does this mean he'll never walk? So there was a lot of unknown in the first few weeks. Once we got that diagnosis, there was still a lot of unknown because like we were saying, this is a super rare condition. So when you Google it, you don't come across a lot of information and the stuff that you do come across scares the daylights out of you. And you might say, why? And I mean, if you just do a quick Google search of lymphedema right now, you're probably going to come across people who have extremely enlarged limbs and it looks really awful and it's scary and shocking to think, oh my goodness, this is what's going to happen to my, my son. But thankfully a friend of mine had told me to check Facebook for support groups. So I did that. And that led me to a ton of resources. And I was able to feel much more at ease as time went on to, we actually are working with a nonprofit that is helping us to provide resources for Jeffrey and in treating him and his lymphedema. So at first I felt really helpless and sad. I was in denial a bit, kept thinking like, maybe this is something that he will grow out of. And then I think now I've, I'm more at terms with the diagnosis, but it's still something that is hard. So how did you feel? So you told us how you felt before you had the diagnosis. Now, once they had a word to put to it or the official, they alluded to it. They were like, we think so probably. Once you got that official clinical diagnosis, your child has primary lymphedema. How, how, what kind of feelings, what kind of thoughts were going through your head at that time? Were you relieved to know that officially this is what, what he had going on? Or were you devastated to have the confirmation of it? I think both. I think um, I was, of course, grateful to have the diagnosis because that meant that, okay, now we know what this is. There are other people in the world who have this condition. There are treatment plans that we can start. But at the same time, I was, and, I, and it, it sounds harsh, the word devastated, right? Like, it sounds like a, like a harsh word, but yeah, I felt, I felt really devastated and really sad that there was something wrong and I didn't know if it was my fault with me having that uh, same gene mutation and is that what was causing it? I was concerned about possibly having more children and if it could potentially affect them. But you were, but to have that, it's, it's funny because I remember going through this with you, as we mentioned in episode one, Tyla and I are very close and we spend hours a day on the phone. And I remember I, I was alongside her through all of it, through the questioning and through the fear of she was afraid to post pictures of her newborn baby because she had fear that people would judge him or, or would see something that wasn't 
they would see his feet and they would question, you know, what was going on and what was wrong. And as a parent with a child who's special needs, all of those things go through your mind. All of the ideas of how do I protect this little person? How do I protect my baby from all of the hard things in life? And he's just born. How can I, how, how do I protect him? And how do I protect myself and my family from those things? And I remember when Tyla got the official diagnosis, that's why I asked those questions specifically because she, she struggled with it but both ways. And I, I think it's sad to, to think that it, it's devastating to hear that your child is not normal. They, they have special needs or they're atypical, but it's also some part of it kind of gets you started on, okay, well, how do I improve his struggle? How do I, how do I do what I can to help him and, and make his disability easier on him? How do I, what, what can I do to support his special needs and help him? So do you have once you got the diagnosis, I know you mentioned a little bit about the nonprofit. What did you put into play? You put into, put into play a bunch of intervention, correct? Yeah. So, and I'm sure other parents of children who have special needs know this, you have to be an advocate for your child. Nobody is going to stand up and help them the way that you can as a parent. And you as a parent probably know what's best for your child. So it was hard because even getting those appointments with the geneticist doctor, getting in to see the specialist at Boston Children's was so hard to do. You have to jump through so many hoops and so much paperwork just to get a doctor's appointment. Do you remember how long it took? It took months. We, we submitted, we started the process with Boston Children's when he was about six weeks old. We did not get to go up to Boston until October. Um, he was about three months old. And I remember that I was so excited to go up there. I I guess I didn't have a good expectation of what that appointment was going to go like, but basically we went up there and they did not do any tests. They just looked at him and said, oh, he's such a cute, happy baby. Yeah, Jeffrey's got lymphedema. He'll be fine. Bring him home, put him in some tight socks, and we'll see you back at six months to do the imaging. Can I just interject one minute? Um, you yeah. said you had, you had a little bit of hope and I know exactly what, or correct me if I'm wrong, but you had this hope that maybe that it, they were wrong, that maybe they were going to give you this magical answer that the lymphedema wasn't real. It was something else. And they were going to give you this magical cure of here's some medicine. It'll be gone. It, he's not going to have it for life. He's going to get better. Is that how you felt? I, I don't know if I necessarily felt that way. I just felt like going up there to see these specialist doctors, we were going to come away with some information that we didn't already have. We would have something new. And like I said, and I'm sure parents know this, when there's something going on with your kid, you become an expert on your child. And so I I kind of walked into that appointment with so much information already. And so the stuff that the doctors were telling me was stuff that I already knew. And I don't mean that to sound arrogant, that I know more than the doctors, but they didn't give me any information that was helpful. And I found the online support groups to be way more helpful with actual other parents who have children with the same condition, primary lymphedema. They were just so much more helpful than um, these specialists when we, when we first got the diagnosis. Yeah. It's, it's so the phrase it takes a village is so accurate. And I know how incredibly fortunate we are to live in today's day and age where we have the ability to connect with people worldwide who 
when you have something as rare as primary lymphedema in a little baby, you have the ability to talk to other mothers. And that's something we didn't have like 15 years ago. You know, we didn't have, I mean, you could write letters and I'm sure that there was other groups that you could partake in, but being able to join Facebook and go on and find a bunch of groups to support you and, and your struggles and to find other moms who are in the thick of it with you, that's really, it's something special. And I can't, I can't speak to the volumes of help that it, that it's given me to be a part of these groups and to hear and to, to know that you're not alone. There are other kids who have it and he's not the single one out. There are people who struggle and they get it. They get, they get what you're going through. Not exactly because everyone goes through things differently, but they have a better idea than, you know, the soccer mom beside you, whose kids had no disabilities and, and were typical children neuro neurologically, they had no struggles. It's and it's, it's an entirely different embrace. Yeah, for sure. I 100% I agree with that. To be a part of a community where you feel like you're not alone, you're not other is so important. And whether you have that on an online, in an online environment or in person, I really encourage you to seek out these groups. And, and I know too, for, for some people, it, it's really hard to accept a diagnosis, but once you do accept it, you can embrace it. And I'm, I'm trying and I, and it's still hard. It's still, I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't struggle with this diagnosis. I still do, but I'm trying more to embrace it and just live in the mentality of it is what it is. What can we do now to help him and to also educate those around us on what this condition is, to not be afraid of it and to not be afraid to ask questions about the condition. Do think that you can ask somebody about their struggles without being offensive. I think that also depends on where they are in that acceptance. Speaking as a mom who has, Jack was diagnosed when he was two and now he's five. So I've had a few years of experience, but I oftentimes come across mothers who are not, I don't want to say not willing to see the struggle that their child has, but they haven't come to terms with the idea of even seeking out a diagnosis for fear of what that means, for fear of what that means for your child to have the official stamp on them or whatever their perception was. And I'm speaking from my own personal experience. That was terrifying being out, having to get a diagnosis that you felt labeled your child as different and not worthy of all of the other things that all these other children who were born totally healthy had. And I felt as though something was stolen from him and me. If I, if I were to go forward with this and accept the fact that he is different and we need to support him in the ways that he needs, I was also accepting that fact that he was not as he was not complete as equal to the kids sitting next to him with no disability and no neurotypical impairment. Yeah. And I remember this is something you said to me, non <laughs> the conversations that we had were you, you almost mourn the loss. I wouldn't say you almost, you mourn the loss of the child that you thought they were going to be. Yeah. So, okay. So, so Tyler talked a little bit about JT, Jack, I, I, we haven't touched on him yet. Let me kind of rewind us for a minute and, and talk about him just so that way people, most people, I want to start by saying I have never socially or I have never gone on a social media platform and acknowledged the fact that Jack is atypical. I have never posted about his diagnosis. I have never, I've joined mom groups, but I have never made a post on my Facebook page 
So unless you were someone that was a friend of mine and we spoke person to person and you were in Jack's day-to-day life, most people don't know that he don't know the struggles. And if you had come into contact with him before we had intervention, you might have thought he, he was different. Most people, that's another thing we can touch on is about how people came back to me after we got the diagnosis and, and something that I don't think they meant harm by it, but being like, I knew something was off. I knew he wasn't normal. I knew I knew he was struggling with something. And again, those types of conversations are so, so hard to have. And I don't think everyone meant malice by them, but that's such a hard thing to hear as a mom with a child who's not typical. So yeah, I'm elaborating on it a little bit, but so, so I was going to say, so you keep saying, you know, Jack is atypical. So what is the diagnosis? What does atypical mean to you and to Jack? So Jack was diagnosed with autism when he was, I think he was two because we were able to receive services for him and in a program called birth to three, which is for children who are not developing at an appropriate rate. He had lack of language and he had some behaviors, some very troubling behaviors that we needed to address. He was doing things like banging his head on the floor. If he was upset, he he didn't have language. So he couldn't tell us what was wrong and he would get upset and he would literally smash his head on our tile floor in our kitchen, or he would destroy a room because he couldn't express himself. So he was, he had no way of, of expressing, Oh, I'm upset or I need this or I need that. So I got really in tune with him, but when we put him into uh, a local daycare that his older sister, Grace had gone to, they had started noticing the the discrepancies and where he was and where his classmates were. And they had raised some concerns. They didn't specifically say autism, but they they had said, what age was that? So he started daycare. I want to say around two because I had went back to work. So he was two. No, he started daycare. Yes. It was, he was two and he got his diagnosis officially in April of because birth to three stays with them till they're three. So he had just turned two. Uh, It was February. He had gotten his diagnosis. So he was born in 20, 16. So I think he was like a year, a little bit, almost, he was almost two. He got his diagnosis in February. He turned two in April. Who diagnosed him? Was it a regular doctor or a special doctor? Yep. So first we had specialists come out for birth to three. Now you don't need a diagnosis for birth to three. You just, if you, if there's a discrepancy in where they should be birth to three is a state program that Connecticut provides for any children that are struggling with behavioral health or neurological impairments. I don't know if they provide services for um, kids with physical impairments, Ty. Um, I, but I do know that there are kids who don't have autism who did support, have support like language delays that had support from birth to three. So birth to three is a state run program that gives free services to children who are under the age of three to support them and hopefully help close the gap to where they are and where they need to be, to be able to be a student at four because preschool starts at four. If you have a child is atypical, your town is then responsible for providing services for your child. It's part of your taxes, which is great because Lord knows having a child with special needs insurance is so expensive to pay for all of the things that you need. In addition to that support that you're already getting from the public schools. I do want to mention though, Jack also has another diagnosis. So on top of his autism, he also has something called Chiari's malformation one. Now that in itself is a very terrifying thing. And it's just like lymphedema. It's a very, very rare thing, especially for kids this young, but 
there are three stages that I know of. He was recently diagnosed, so I don't know a lot about it, but what I do know is that the one that Jack has isn't the worst of them. We actually are very lucky to have even seen it on his CAT scan because he gets migraines. That was the original reason we had, we had a CAT scan and they had seen the Chiaris. And basically what that means, there's a part in his brain that is, your brain is constructed roughly the same way as everyone else's. All of the pieces of our brain are put together like a puzzle and his piece behind his head near the nape of his neck that goes into his spinal cord is shifted by a certain percentage. And there's, you know, within normal parameters, it's allowed a certain percentage. And Jack is just over that. I want to say like 10% over that, which we couldn't be more grateful that it's that, but there that's something that he now needs to see a neurologist for. And they're tracking him to make sure that there's no other impairments that are caused by it. And it has all other things that would be happening or apparent with him. If that ended up becoming, if it ended up shifting or becoming more separated from where his brain is supposed to have that piece of his brain, if it can't kept going down, he would have significant issues that we would be able to notice and identify. But in addition to his autism, he also has Chiari's and we had that diagnosis because he has reoccurring chronic migraines, probably about once to twice a week, he'll, he'll have a migraine, which we recently discovered due to two years of research on my part and all of the other doctors that are in Jack's corner of us following through. And now that he has language and he can express to us what hurts and where it hurts and when it hurts, we've been able to pinpoint it, which is why we were able to find the Chiaris. Right. So he was diagnosed with autism around two and then Chiaris that was recently, right? Yeah. So five, he, he had just turned. Yeah. He was like, he was a month from his fifth birthday when he was diagnosed with the Chiaris. However, I do have to say kind of like what you had said, so when he was diagnosed with autism, just like they kind of did with lymphedema, the birth of three who came looked at him and they were like, you know, he looks like he has autism. He checks all the boxes. He, he, he has all, cause autism is, is a spectrum. You can have very, very severe behaviors and you can have very slight behaviors. So that's, what's kind of hard about autism. It's not like a genetic test you can do. It's not something that you can just look at him and say he has autism, which I know is triggering for some parents to be like, he doesn't look like he has autism or he doesn't appear like he, he looks normal. So that can be triggering for some, but for me, that's, it, it doesn't bother me because we work so mm-hmm. hard to overcome his struggles. So for him to be outwardly uh, quote unquote appearing normal, not that normal is the goal here, but for him to have less of the struggle going into the world with people to be able to say to him, he's off or he's different that's what we work. That's what we spent hours and hours using intervention therapy to, to prevent. Right. So what does intervention therapy look like for Jack? Or I should say, what did it look like in the beginning? How, how did that work? So birth to three was the first program and it was as intense as they could provide for us when he was t- between the ages of two and three, he had birth to three. He had the birth to three program at, at, for, I want to say three or four months. I think we started in March it takes a while for everything to get kicked in. And by June, they were transitioning to us to a specific program through a company called Beacon Services, which is local to our area that supports children who are on the spectrum specifically. I think they may work with some other atypical kids as well that are not specifically autism, but they directly work primarily with kids on the spectrum. So that was a scary time for us because Jack had all of these things that he couldn't do. We would put him in the car and he would scream and scream and scream for hours. And I had moms who were telling me, oh, you're just, you just got to let him cry it out. He'll stop. 
And it, I remember one night it got to, it was like three hours and I was sitting outside of his room and I, he was crying. I was crying. Grace at the time was like six. She was crying and she had come to me and she was like, you're torturing him. Just go pick him up. Just hold him. Just, he just needs to be held and he's scared. And he was, he was a baby at that point. And I was so broken as and defeated as a mother, as, as a, as a person, as a wife, my husband and grace were like, you're, you're not doing what he needs. And that's such a hard thing to hear and to figure out what, what is it that your child needs? You have everyone coming in from different directions, trying to tell you what to do with your kid. But at the time I was so lost that having a program like ABA therapy, which is what after birth to three came in, we had beacon and beacon introduced us to ABA therapy. What is ABA therapy? So ABA therapy is applied behavioral analysis. Now that can be used anywhere. It's used with animal training, like at SeaWorld and zoos. Uh, It's used in big companies, corporate companies, when there's a breakdown in communication between adults, but it's used also with kids who are atypical and or have behavioral issues. And it's a science that they have cut it down to literally, they track every reaction that your kid has, what the precedents were, what the antecedents were, what the behavior caused and what your reaction to the behavior was. It's a science that they track all of those things to pinpoint what was causing his tantrums or his meltdowns. So ABA therapy, we started in June when he was two and we had intention intervention therapy four to five, almost every single day for an hour and a half at a time. And I remember when we started this people didn't get like what we, they're like, so what do they do with him? And I basically boil it down to like layman's terms. I was like, in layman's terms, we make him mad to get him to react the way that he does to have a tantrum. And we teach him how to come back from it. So like, so basically you just, these people come over your house, make your kids scream and freak out. And then you, he has to like learn to come down from it. And I was like, yeah, basically it's what we do. And it's, it's evolved into so much more than that. We've gotten him to be able to do so many things, but initially that was what it was. We had to get him to do these bad behaviors and teach him that he could manage and control them and teach teach him ways that he could overcome these obstacles that he had in front of him. Yeah. And he's definitely, if I, if I might just say too, cause I know Jack, he's like my nephew and he has come so far in this journey. He's a happy little guy that loves dinosaurs and makes us laugh every single day. The things that he says, just like any other kid. And I think one of the things too, that Kiana was saying before about when somebody says, oh, your child looks normal and why we might not take offense to that is because like she had said, uh, we want our children to be able to thrive at school or on the playground. And we want other kids to treat them like they would any other kid. And so for Jack to be verbal and for Jack to be able to play with other kids and to get along with other kids. That's really important. Yeah. And to touch back on that a little bit, we had, we had talked about his diagnosis and how did it make you feel? And you had alluded to, or I think you had even mentioned the conversation that you and I had, which I remember very vividly. I had a, I had a a family friend say to me when we had gotten the official diagnosis, because it was kind of like your lymphedema. They were like, yeah, he has it, but you need a clinical diagnosis. You need a doctor to sign a paper and look at him and say, officially on paper by a medical doctor, this child is on the spectrum. And when I had gotten that piece of paper, it was devastating to me because I continued to hold on to hope 
even, even sometimes now I'll have our developmental pediatrics, which is a specialty doctor that works with kids who are atypical and, or have special needs. And every time we go in, there's levels of, of the spectrum that they fall under. And every time we go in, I'm thinking in my head, it, maybe it's a possibility that there was a mistake and maybe he doesn't have autism. And we've worked so hard to overcome these struggles that he have, but he has, but if we can give him the tools that he needs to overcome them, maybe he won't have it. And the, the conversation that I had had with this family friend, she had said to me, but Kiana, th that doesn't change who he was. That piece of paper that that doctor wrote does not change the little boy that you birthed into this world. It does not change that little boy who's going to look up you, at you and ask you about the dinosaurs or want an ice cream. He is still the same child, whether he has that diagnosis, whether he has someone looking at him saying he looks different as he is before he had any of those things, before anyone looked at him and said he was different. And that, that was something that really helped me with the loss of what I was feeling. And I had talked about it with Tyla because I had gone through this before she had JT because Jack's a few years older. And I remember so vividly when she was going through it and she was in the thick of it, it brought me back to, to, to going through it and reliving the feelings that I had. And I think the way that I explained it to her, as I said, your morning or for me, I was mourning the loss of a child that I had in my mind. I had this idea of what I wanted this child that I brought into this world to be. And when you're pregnant and you're getting ready to bring life into the world, all you can think of is all of the amazing things that your, your kid's going to change the world. Like your kid is going to conquer it. They're going to be an all-star. They are going to be the class, you know, the class, the king and queen of the prom. They're going to be, you know, the, the top of the class. They're going to achieve all of these things that you have for these hopes and wishes. They're going to go beyond what you ever could have thought. And when you get that diagnosis, when you get someone looking you in the face and saying, your kid is atypical, your kid is not neurotypical. Something is different about your child and he's going to struggle because of it. You feel like your world is crashing down around you. It feels like you're almost in like this out of body experience and you can't stop it. And, uh, you kind of, it just kind of takes over, or at least it did for me. And I think it doesn't help too, that I'm somebody who may be a little bit more anxious and I tend to maybe not see the glass half full, but I see it half empty. And it was just this moment of, oh my goodness, like this, this is, what are we going to do from this? And, you know, I have to touch on this one point of um, somebody who had said something to me, another parent of a child who has lymphedema, she had said, I just want you to enjoy your baby. Please stop worrying about the lymphedema. He is going to be okay. Enjoy your baby. She said, I'm speaking from my own personal experience. She goes, I can't remember any happy moments from when my little girl was a baby because I was just in this constant state of panic and worrying. It's really hard for me to remember any happy or positive experiences from those newborn and early days because I was just so upset and consumed by this diagnosis. So she had said, please don't let this happen to you. And I, I mean, it's obviously easier said than done, right? To have somebody give you that advice and then actually not let that happen. But so for me in that aha moment, that like exact, like, per, like absolutely perfectly said, like your child is who they are and they're still your child and they still need you to be a mom to 
a child and not just a special needs child. And we had gone back and forth about even doing this episode because we were unsure of how we would even touch on these topics. But for me, when I, when Jack got that diagnosis, I mourned the loss of the child and the future child, the, you know, the grown adult in my mind that I had played Jack out to be so many times that I'd fantasized that he would be. And I'm still mourning that loss here and there when he has struggles and he has things that I feel as though will be impossible for him, for him to do things that I never, and like him having, being able to tell me I have a headache and, and I need to go to sleep because I know that that will make me feel better knowing how many hours I had spent on the floor crying outside of his room because I couldn't help him because I didn't know what he needed or what he struggled. And again, it kind of just comes full circle to the idea of there is a lot tied into being a parent who of a child who is special needs or atypical or non-neurotypical because there's so many facets that come apart that facets that that are a part of this where you know it's it's a family thing. It's where everyone in, is trying to be involved and help but you feel as though you're taking on the brunt of this as you're alone, as much as your partner is there to support you and help you, you're the mother of this child. And you feel as though it's your responsibility to make sure that they're complete and whole. It's definitely a very unique feeling. And it's something that I wish more people understood. So why don't we talk about that and how these diagnoses have impacted other people in our family? So you were just mentioning like, as the mom, you feel like you have this responsibility to make sure that Jack is taken care of. And I'm sure that probably looks like you're the one who's bringing him to all of these appointments. Can we just talk about that for a second as parents of children who have special needs or are atypical? There are so many appointments, so many appointments. Like, like I was saying with the ABA, an hour and a half every single day. We couldn't do anything. We couldn't go anywhere. We had to plan everything around these appointments. I'm sure. What, so, so Ty, for specialties for lymphedema, what, what doctors and visits have you had to have? So we've seen genetics doctors. We've seen vascular, um, anom- we've seen a, a team of doctors at the vascular anomalies clinic. So that was a radiologist and cancer specialist. We saw a, I don't even know what he is. He's a lymphedema doctor. Um, and, and a, a few more too uh, that were a part of his team. Um, we see a certified lymphedema therapist. Uh, we've actually, we work with two of them. They're both physical therapists. So certified lymphedema therapists do not need to be physical therapists, but that's basically what a CLT does. Um, they do different techniques to provide compression or massages that will manually move the lymph fluid out of the affected areas. So we have lots of PT appointments. We have appointments with these specialty doctors up in Boston. We also have appointments with certified compression fitters, which we have an appointment tomorrow for both physical therapy and for JT to go get measured to um, be fit into these custom, basically socks, that he'll have to wear most of the time um, that will help him with his swelling. So he has socks that he can wear during the day and at night, well, the ones that he wears at night are more like boots, but they basically compress the air, the, his foot, the area where he has the lymphedema to try to get the fluid to move out. But it's one of those. And you also do massages too, right? Yeah. So one of the things that we do is MLD, which is manual lymphatic drainage. And it's a very light massage where you massage the lymph node areas. You start from basically your head and you work your way down 
and it's um, to stimulate your lymph nodes where they do work to try to get, when you get down to the affected area, which happened to be his feet, we can try to move that lymph fluid from his feet up to his areas in his body where it does process lymph the right way. And that's not a, that's not a permanent fix, but these are things that help to support him and to make his day-to-day living easier and in a better quality, correct? For sure. Yeah. So there's, there's no cure for lymphedema, at least right now there's not. Um, so this is all different tools that we have to manage the condition. Um, and I've, I've noticed just now with there, there being a few hot days, it seems that on really hot days, his swelling does seem to be a little bit worse, um, which lines up with what our doctors have told us. Yep. That checks out. Um, and also too, like I'll notice in the morning, it seems to be a lot less and that's because gravity is helping us out there. So when you're standing in an upright position all day long, gravity is working against your lymphatics to kind of keep that fluid pooling down. But when you're laying down horizontally, your body has to do less work to get that lymph fluid to move out of his feet. So Nan, what does a normal Monday through Friday look like for you and for Jack and for the rest of the people in your house? So with Jack having autism, currently we are on a little bit of a hiatus due to insurance issues and Nick switching jobs. But typically Jack sees an ABA specialist two to three times a week, depending on the schedule and when we can get them to come. And he also sees a speech therapist three or four times a week. It's now at school. We did used to have to travel to Yukon speech and hearing clinic, which they were phenomenal. He also used to see once weekly, a physical therapist out in Glastonbury, which is like an hour from our position, but he now sees a physical therapist at school and an occupational therapist as well. He is seeing eye doctors. He's seeing ophthalmologists once every two or three months to track some eye issues that he's also struggling with. And he's seeing his developmental peds once a year. And then he sees the neurologist once every six months as well to follow the Chiaris. So our weekly schedule is pretty slim. Well, not, I should, I say slim compared to what we used to do every single day. (laughs) And literally every single day, we'd have two to three appointments for Jack for his autism, but now it's kind of waned now that he's in school, they're able to provide services that we used to have to travel for. So currently outside of school, he's getting the ABA two to three times a week for an hour and a half at a time, which is a lot of work on everyone, but it's made such incredible progress that we can't be more grateful for the process, but it's definitely a lot of work. Like you were saying, like you have to travel all of these specialty doctors. I mean, you were saying about how you had to go to Boston for your lymphedema specialists. They're not close. These types of things you, you have to travel to get the best of the best. And that's what is important to us to make sure that both of the, both JT and Jack are getting the best available that we can give them. Absolutely. And making sure that JT has the best care that I can get him is so important to me. So I don't care if I have to travel 10 minutes, two hours or across the country, I will do whatever I need to do to make sure that he has access to care that he needs. Like Kiana was saying, insurance can be such a, first of all, I'm very grateful that we have insurance and that they do provide coverage for these doctor's visits and whatnot, but it can be so challenging to deal with insurance in getting access to the care that we need. For sure. So Ty, now that we've talked a little bit about what we feel as moms, 
with our children who are atypical or special needs, how does it impact your family as a whole? How does your husband respond to it? What about family members? How are they feeling with all of this? Yeah. So it affects our family because we definitely do have appointments on a weekly basis. So right now we're seeing a physical therapist weekly, um, every Wednesday in, in the morning before I go to work. So thankfully I work from home. I work remotely, so it doesn't disrupt our schedules too much, but I am usually the one taking JT to those appointments. Um, my husband cannot for his job. So touching on that husbands and how they have processed the diagnosis. Um, I know for, for us, my husband, I'm pretty sure he's fully accepted it. And I definitely don't want to speak for him and say, this is how he feels. And this is what he thinks, because I think he's just a different person than I am. I'm very emotional. And my husband is not, my husband is very factual, logical, clear cut, he basically was like, okay, he's got lymphedema. Great. What do we do to treat it? Okay. We go to physical therapy. We go up to Boston a couple times a year. Okay, great. Let's do it. Move on. He doesn't dwell on things, especially this. I know for him, he thinks that maybe I'm making a bigger deal than it might be some of the time. And that's something that we struggle with because part of, so one of the things that we do to, for treatment or did do was bandaging, which is completely of like different layers of bandages that we wrap his feet in. And if you have had a baby, you know that they are very squirmy. And when we would do this, it would be right before he'd get ready for going to bed. And by that point, he's usually pretty exhausted, tired, and fussy. And when you're trying to bandage a little baby's legs, that's kicking and screaming. It doesn't go over so well. So it would be really hard because my husband would say, Hey, the doctor at Boston Children's told us that there was absolutely no benefit to wrapping him. So why are we doing this? Why are we stressing him out? Why are we stressing ourselves out with trying to do this? But I was the one taking Jeffrey to his physical therapy appointments. And the physical therapist was telling us that the bandaging did help. So it was very hard for us to have conflicting information coming from two different doctors. And my husband was thinking, let's not worry about this. Let's just kind of like let things play out. And I was more of, no, we need to be aggressive. We need to do this now. We have to take care of it now. Which that can be hard. That can be hard on not only as, you know, you as parents, but as a marriage. Yeah. Cause we don't always agree on what the right way to approach treatment is. Even our physical, our newest physical therapist is recommending that we go follow up with a second vascular specialty doctor. And they're in Greenwich, which is about two hours from our house. And my, we were actually supposed to go yesterday, but something came up and we couldn't. My husband was like, another appointment for what? Cause he's kind of accepted the fact like there's nothing that we can do to make his lymphedema go away. There's nothing that we can do to really make treatment any different than it is right now. So he's kind of in the mindset of we're going to go see another phys another specialist just for them to tell us something that we already know that's a waste of our time. But there's part of me that holds on to this hope right. of, well, they're a new doctor. Maybe they'll have something new to say, even though if I'm being realistic, they probably won't. But yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely impacted our family. Another thing too, that Kiana had mentioned earlier in this podcast was that she has not shared anything about Jack publicly. Whereas 
I have shared about JT's diagnosis publicly on social media. Um, and that was something that my husband and I didn't fully agree on at first. When he was first born, I wasn't sure if I needed to tell people, Hey, he has swollen feet. And my husband was like, why would you tell people? Like, there's no reason why people need to know if people know something they're going to treat him differently. And I don't want anybody to treat him differently because of his condition. But I was like, well, I think people should be aware. And he didn't agree with that. Um, but then once we started working with the nonprofit, I was like, Hey, I would really like to mention this on my social media platform just to bring awareness and to help the nonprofit raise money. And so my husband was more accepting of that idea and was like, okay, if we're doing it to raise awareness of the condition and it's not like a pity party, like, oh, look at our poor son who's helpless, then he was more on board with sharing it. But he's also just a very private person, whereas I am not. <laughs> right. And that's such a hard thing to it's so personal on so many levels, like your feelings for it and Jeffrey's feelings for it were just so evident. And my husband is a lot like Jeffrey as well. Like he doesn't want pity. He does not want people to look at Jack differently. And in some areas I felt as though it was not my place to tell his story. And that if he, the people who needed to know, like his caregivers and his school, they knew, but at some point it also came to the, to light that by people knowing that Jack was not normal, I shouldn't say not normal, but by them knowing that he was atypical, they understood and they gave him some grace. And it's funny, you know, growing with grace because they did. He wasn't just that kid who was a bad kid because he was freaking out. He had grace because they understood his brain didn't work like yours. His brain does not work like the kid next to him. And and that's okay because we're different. And we understand that he is different in a, in a special way. And I remember thinking when, when I had that moment of, okay, do I tell people, do I not tell people when I told people and, and they understood, I, I felt relief almost like now these people don't think my kid's bad or he's a jerk you know, beating up other kids or banging his head on the ground, or I'm a bad mom. It's that he's just, he sees the world differently and we got to help him see it in a more calm and easier way than he's being bombarded with. And that, that's what brought it for me knowing that people, not the pity party, but that they gave him some grace. Yeah. And I think that's something that maybe we'll have to do a follow-up episode in five years when Jeffrey is more of at school age, um, because right now he's in daycare and daycare knows that he has lymphedema. I mean, if you, if you look at his feet, you can tell that like his feet are puffy and his toenails don't grow the way that our toenails grow. They kind of grow slanted upwards and they take special care to, we have to take special care to make sure that his feet are covered. So that way they don't get hurt um, while he's at daycare. And it's just not really something that a lot of people really understand. And I know like some of the daycare teachers have asked me like, Hey mom, like, how's that whole feet thing going? Is he okay? And it's a hard thing to answer with just an answer of like, yeah, he's okay. And I know that is usually how I answer. I usually go, yep, he's fine. Like, thanks for asking because Right. How are you going to get into it right now in the hallway of where the car seats are with this mom who doesn't really know you? Yeah, it's or no, it's not even the mom. It's the other te- it's teachers that work there. Um, it's just it's it's just hard, I guess, to, to talk about it. And, and people will say things like, oh, he might grow out of it. Right. I know they don't mean it to be hurtful or offensive. And, and I, I guess I don't really take offense to it, but it's just 
it's hard and it gets exhausting to, to explain to people, no, he probably most likely will not grow out of this. He's going to have this for the rest of his life. It is not a death sentence. He is still Jeffrey, and I want you to treat him as you would if you didn't know that he had lymphedema. But at the same time, like you were saying, Nan, give him grace because I, I don't know. And truth be told, I don't know how this is going to affect Jeffrey physically when he gets older. Thank goodness I've seen online the community of little boys and girls who do have lymphedema, and they seem to be doing all of the things that little kids like to do playing and doing just normal kid things. But I mean, so far he's, he's crawling, he's active, he's a little boy. He's a happy little boy. That's something you should be proud of. Yeah. He's, he's really happy. At least everybody tells me he's really happy. I don't have any other babies to compare him to, but he's happy and uh, he's doing the things that he needs to do so far. So we'll talk about it, I guess, in a couple of years and see how, you know, we're doing as a family and how he's doing once he gets a little bit older, but I think overall our family is, is doing, we're doing fine. You know, um, sometimes family members or other people just don't know what to say. I remember actually the first time my father-in-law was like, you know, your kids got special needs. Your wife should really consider like quitting her job and staying home with him. And I was so irate at the fact that he used the word special needs. And now we're sitting here and that's the word that Kiana and I were not sure what words to use because um, saying the word disabled or disability or he's normal or he's not normal. It's how, like, how do you talk about this? We, I don't know, but now I guess I embrace the word special needs because he has needs that are special or different than a child who was not born with lymphedema. So Kiana, how does this affect your family as a whole? Well, for me, it's a little different because it is my husband, but I also have another child who's older and she's of school age. So when all of this stuff started coming out, it was really hard on her as not only a sister, but as a daughter. And we still are struggling to find the happy medium between the two of them because Jack needs so much attention that oftentimes grace is left in the cold. And I don't mean that to sound harsh but it's the reality of it. And this is a conversation that I've had with Utah and I've, I've had to say to other family members, I don't have it to give to her because Jack needs so much from me right now. And I've had to like reach out to other family members and say, can you please give her the special attention she needs and deserves? I, I have to say now that Jack is older and he's of school age, her and I have really been able to reconnect and rekindle that kind of really close bond that we had, but it's definitely not easy. It's not easy on us as a family, when you have a child who needs so much attention, you have to, it's almost like damage control. Like, you know, both of them need attention, but if one of them is really, really struggling hard, you both kind of gravitate to the child who's needing, whose needs are so much more than what the other child has. And it makes you feel as though you're inadequate as a parent at some level, one of them is going to be let down and you have to make that choice. And it's not an easy choice. Every situation, every day, it's so, so hard, but I have to say that as a family, we are definitely growing with grace and not only the person grace, but also, you know, the, the idea that we are doing our best and every day that's, that's all we can do. And, and that's a conversation I have with grace most days. And sometimes she's almost 11. I need to just hold her and she needs to just know that she is loved and she is seen and she is heard, 
even though Jack needs a lot. And she, she says that to her friends, to her teachers, to family members, you know, I know he needs a lot, but sometimes I just need a hug or I, I just need some attention too. And that's hard. That's hard as a parent. So I do not envy parents who have more than one child who have significant needs and disabilities, because I, I don't know how I would manage it if both of them had significant needs. I don't know how I'd be able to divide my attention and conquer, but it's definitely, it takes, like I had said in the beginning, it takes a village and you need to ask for help when you need it. And no one is a mind reader. No one is going to be able to save you from your day to day. You're the warrior in your story. You are the hero. You are the one that's going to save the day. And you are the one that has to come in and stand with your cape on and, and fix it or make it better. And that's, I think that's what gets me through. And that's what gets us through knowing that today, Jack was a little bit better than he was yesterday. And we, as a family are a little bit stronger because he's better. And because we moved in that direction, it's not just him that has autism. Our family is affected by autism and we all work together to overcome that, including extended family, like Tyla and Brandy and my mom and my mother-in-law and everyone else around who is supporting Jack. Yeah. It's one thing that I think is really admirable about you, Kiana, is that you have done such a great job as a mom and as a wife. And I feel like you're just the glue that really holds everybody together through the happiest moments and through the hardest moments. You were there for your family. And sometimes I know it feels like you're not doing everything that you can, but I just want to emphasize that you are, and I know you are because I talk to you every single day. So don't be too hard on yourself about, you know, being the best mom because you are the best mom for both Jack and for Grace. And I think that's important to know too, that no matter where your child is, whether they're special needs or neurotypical or atypical, you are, if you are giving them your best, you are right where you need to be. That's all you have to give and give yourself some grace. Give yourself these moments of knowing that they are loved, they are taken care of, and they are in the best hands that they could be because that's what being a parent is doing your best to give them the best of everything of yourself and of the world around them. Absolutely. Well, this is definitely a topic I feel like we'll have to touch on more at some point, and I'm sure we'll have some questions from listeners and we'd love to answer them. But I think our episode is nearing its end and it's time for us to say goodbye. Thank you for listening, guys. I really hope you come back for our next episode. If you've listened to our first and second episode, I'm so happy and I can't wait to share with you some more. I know. So exciting for episode three. Stay tuned, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.